You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. I want to take time today to personally thank our sponsors, the JI Learning Center and the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Listeners, please do us a solid and support our sponsors. Thank you. Easy go and easy come, where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Welcome, Pod the rest of us listeners. You're listening to Elizabeth Stanley. I, along with Karen Castro, bring you Season 3, Two Roads. We drew inspiration for this season from Robert Foss's poem, The Road Not Taken. Given that we're all hunkered down, sheltered in place, it seems likely that most of us are taking stock in who and what we value. Once free, what do we really want to do with our precious time? Throughout season three, you will hear 10 stories of individuals who, on their life's path, realized that maybe, just maybe, the road less traveled was the difference their lives needed. We hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, thank you for tuning in. In this interview, you will learn what it's like to serve in our military and the impact it has on a family. David shares more details and how battle has left scars. Many of those scars will never heal. This is David's story of war, self-destruction, and finding his way back home. Please note, this episode may be difficult to listen to. There's a discussion about suicidal thoughts. Please use your discretion throughout this episode. Also, if you or anyone you know has suicidal thoughts, please reach out to the suicidal hotline. They're there to help. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Let's start by uh, you explaining. Just giving us a little background into your childhood and where you grew up. Okay. All right, so um, let's see. I grew up kind of in Southern California and mainly Northern California. When I was younger, my dad was in the Marine Corps until 93, and at that time we were in Oceanside, California, so down there in Southern Cal. After he got out and my sister was born in 93, we ended up moving to the Bay Area in the East Bay, so living in Livermore area. And I've been there ever since, really. Um, growing up, had a pretty good re- good relationship with my dad, my mom, and my sister. Um, dad was the coach of my soccer teams growing up, and I love that. So like, looking back, um, I could say that's probably one of the, some of the few highlights I have from him growing up. Um, he worked in construction. My mom worked at a bank back in the day doing uh, loans, so she was a, a underwriter and a loan rep growing up. Um, when I was let's see, when I was nine, so in '97, my parents divorced. Um, at the time, my sister was four years old, and at a, as a nine-year-old and a four-year-old, you don't really know what's uh, what's happening when your mom's crying and your dad's telling you that. Him and mom just got to part ways. You don't really know how to process that at a young age. Um, So my dad left when I was nine years old under his own reasons. Of course, as time goes on and I get older and I look back at certain things in my life, you start to piece together the reasons behind that divorce. And you come to find out that at a young age, you're given a very broad, broad reasoning behind a divorce. Um, but as you grow up, you start to understand things better and understand where, where and why they divorced. And I guess you'd say for the longest time, I had a, uh, I had a lot of hate in my heart because, because of the divorce. Um, growing up, I was extremely close to my dad. Like I was saying, him and I, I mean, you couldn't really break us apart. If I didn't want to go to school at a young age or if I was sick, I'd go to work with him to a job site. 
and I enjoyed that so much. Those are some of the biggest highlights I have growing up with him. As I got older, I had a lot of hate in my heart and uh, I guess resentment and distrust because the people that I loved, I guess you could say growing up, I realized that I was lied to or steered away from the truth. Um, And I guess to this day, it's hard for people to admit truths from that time. I I guess you could say I'm referring to my dad and maybe even my mom in in some cases. Um, But I've learned to forgive him for for the divorce. I've learned to forgive my mom because growing up, after my parents split, I think my mom saw a lot of my dad in me. So growing up, I guess to really understand my mom, we got to understand her background as well, right? Of course. My mom grew up with a dad who I think did 30 years in the army. He did two, three tours to Vietnam, two Purple Hearts. Um, so he was a very strict individual very hands-on in some ways Um, just expected obedience I guess so growing up my mom was on my mom and all of her other eight siblings were on the receiving end of this of our my grandfather so growing up my mom I think only understood one way to get a point across or how to discipline her children and that was through physical form now nothing like you know, closed fists or anything, but hey, go pick out a belt. So I'd have to go to the room and pick out a belt to be whipped with. And when I brought it back, if she didn't like it, I'd have to go pick out another one, right? So after my parents split, I think my mom saw a lot of my dad in me. And whenever she got angry, it was taken out on me. There was some anger that was expressed towards my sister growing up, but I think because my mom and my sister are both women or at the time my sister was very young but still same gender I think my mom had more of a closer bond with her so growing up my mom and I just kind of started to grow apart and I got more I got rough and that and what I mean by that is I didn't really obey her I didn't listen to her um I know there were times when she tried to mean well and do well by me, but I think by that point in time in my life, I just, I was already fed up. I was fed up with being treated wrong. I was, I was upset for, it's never really having a voice. Um, I was upset that my dad was still gone. He's gone. He's remarried, started a new family, barely see him. Um, so I just started doing a lot of, I guess, I don't say bad things it's not like I got in trouble with the law maybe because I always ran extremely fast and got away from the law but I just started hanging out with the wrong crews um, in high school yeah you know, 16, in, in, yeah in typical. high school the typical you know when you get in you know freshman year it's brand new school you're at the bottom of the totem pole um, you're trying to just I don't say find your way, but I guess that's what happens, right? You try to find your way, try to find your place within high school. Uh, I was able to find that fairly quick. I had a good group of friends. Uh, to this day, I'm still pretty close with a couple of them. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I started hanging out with the wrong crowd. At the time, I didn't think it was the wrong crowd, right? Um, but yeah, I got into a lot of fights. I was a part of a lot of fights. I, I remember my freshman year, I, I counted how many fights I was a part of, and that was like 63. Um, so, you, so you can tell I wasn't really a great teenager at that time. So then growing up all through high school, I didn't really do well in school. I didn't really care. All I cared about was working out, hanging out with friends, and that was about it. Then as time went on, graduated high school kind of hit this point in my life where I didn't really know what I wanted to do Um, so I ended up working at in and out in high school I think my uh, 
sophomore, junior, senior year, I worked at that that burger joint, and that was actually a fun job. I mean, in high school, I really only had a cell phone bill. But then after that, I ended up uh, leaving that and worked at Camp Otabachi, the Italian restaurant here in Livermore. There, that is when I met my wife now, Megan. Her and I have been together for 12 plus years, um, since since 07. And 07 is when I went to Campo. But yeah, so then I worked at Campo for from 07 till basically the end of 2009. And in 2009, I was exploring, well really in 2008, I was exploring what it is I want to do with my life. And that was always either law enforcement, firefighting, or on the back end, the military. Because my dad was in the Marine Corps. My grandfather was in the Marine Corps. My closest cousin was in the Marine Corps. His dad was in the Marine Corps. I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to join the Marine Corps. I guess that's just what I'll do. Um, Everybody looks at the Marine Corps a certain way. They're usually the first ones in, you know, they're your door kickers. Um, They're just, they just have a reputation for going out and kicking ass on a battlefield. And that's what I wanted. Joining the Marine Corps helped me in many ways, but at the same time hindered me in many ways. I think it exasperated some of my, um, Anger. There you go. Repressed anger. Yeah, that's that's the best way to put it, right? Because through boot camp, you're you're taught how to just basically shut your mind off and be numb to everything, which I, in a way, was already kind of good at growing up because of the dynamics of the household with my mom and her and I getting into arguments and being told to shut up. And when I would try to talk, everything just got shoved back down my throat. So I was already bred to be good at being numb and just shutting up so what happened after boot camp so after boot camp um after boot camp depending on what my job was in the marine corps i was an intel analyst so i ended up going to marine combat training which was like a like a four-week training cycle back down in san diego after that i went to damnick virginia to do my intel school um, I got there, I think in June of 2010, and then I left Damn Neck, Virginia in October of 2010. From there, I went, I was stationed in North Carolina, it's at Camp Lejeune, at 2nd Intel Battalion. Now at the time, I didn't really know what kind of unit I was getting into, um, as I got more, I guess, mature in my Marine Corps career, I understood that Intel battalions, and this is no disrespect to any Marines that may be listening or former or any Intel people, um, that's where people go to just die (laughs) in the Marine Corps as an Intel person. And what I mean by that is the bread and butter of our job is being attached to infantry units, special ops units, um, or going on a MEW, which is a Marine X expeditionary unit that's going on a ship those are the bread and like in those units that's where you master your craft as an intel person because you're working on targeting and collections so gathering information about the bad guys right and then being able to disseminate that to your other marines that you're trying to help out so all your grunts that are on the ground kicking indoors on a ship you're constantly doing um you're constantly staying up to date on current events and local terrorist activity or crime activity in whatever country you're coming to stop at. So you're constantly on the grind, constantly learning, and you're constantly analyzing just what the situation is. At an intel battalion, at least my experience from an intel battalion, we just sat around in a room that had paper over the windows and just sat at a computer and just read current events and that was it so to me I had this certain vision of what the Marine Corps was like and that was a very fast-paced gung-ho brotherhood I got to an intel battalion and that was just a slow-paced that's where all the broken Marines are at that's where all the pregnant Marines were at you know we just didn't do anything and in my mind I was thinking 
What the hell am I doing here? Like, this is not what I signed up for. So at that moment in time, I regretted every decision. <laughs> I was like, screw this, get me out of here. Luckily enough for me, uh, our company officer at the time, first lieutenant, he got transferred to a unit called 2nd Ground Sensor Platoon, so, or 2nd GSP. That unit was made up of former infantry and former communication marines. So your guys that are out there on the ground kicking indoors, pulling triggers. Their job at GSP was to implant sensors and track enemy movement. That's the simplest way to explain that. Well, when he got transferred, he asked if he could take me with him. And then he came and asked me, hey, I'm getting transferred. I'd like you to come with me to this new unit. Well, at the time, he caught me off guard. I was just walking down the hallway, and he asked me this. And I'd been at this unit for like two months now. So he asked me. I said, uh, I'd have to talk to the wife, figure out what's up. Because then what was going on is GSP was going out on a JTF North, Joint Task Force North uh, mission. They were going to Nogales, Arizona to assist Border Patrol's sensor division, who implant sensors along the border of Mexico and into the U.S., and they track movement of people coming across the border. So we were to go and basically advise or assist the sensor division of Border Patrol in implanting more sensors to be able to track the heavy movement coming across the border and to kind of teach them some of the tactics and strategies that we use in employing our sensors. So that was the overall goal of why I was going to second GSP because my job was going to was to analyze when the heaviest um, traffic times were, at what time of day, what day, what size groups, um, and it was and it was almost like counter narcotics basically. So people coming across the border most of the times were smuggling drugs into the U.S. So we were stopping that basically. Uh, did that for some time. And then after that, I got back, or we got back to Lejeune. And I was told right away, hey, you're going back to your parent unit, which was the Intel Battalion, or my company, which was called like AFP, Anti-Fusion something, I don't know. Hey, you're going to go back to that company. I said, the hell I am. I'm not going there. So at the time, I was just... Lance Corporal was just an E3, really nothing big in the Marine Corps in regards to the rank. I walked up to my gunny at the time, and uh, I told him, I said, Gunny, I, I don't want to fucking be here. Please, I, 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 I don't want to be here. I can't be here. I'm going to lose my mind. Put me, on a, put me on a deployment. Just put me on anything. I don't care what it is. He said, okay, I'll look into something. No joke. I think like two, three days later, I'm, I, I get a phone call. It's my gunny. He said, hey, I got you a deployment. You're going to go on an advisor team to Afghanistan, and you're going to train the Afghans. I said, okay, sweet. I, I appreciate it. He said, all right, I'll have more info for you in the coming days. I said, all right, cool. Hung up the phone. So I said, all right, well, how do I, how do I tell the wife um, I'm doing that? Well, I told her, hey, babe, going on a deployment, going to, a, going to Afghanistan on an advisor team. So, of course, she wasn't happy about that, right? Naturally, I mean, what loved one would be. Um, but as a Marine, I was elated. Right? Like, I thought, awesome. That's, that's what I signed up for. I signed up for it to go, to go do some shit. Um, come January 2012, we deployed to Afghanistan. The deployment in itself, there were a lot, um, 
there are a lot of rough times and a lot of good times. We were in charge of advising somewhere like 20 or 30 Afghans. Um, that in itself was kind of fun, but at the same time, we were like, what are we doing here? I think we were the, like the fifth advisor team to go and train the 215th. To do what? To tr- to advise or help um, help them better their skills in the intel section and then in the, all the other sections as well. So we were the 215th core advisor team. 215th was the Afghan unit. We were like the fifth advisor team being assigned to this Afghan unit, right? Whether trying to kill them, stab them, whatever the case may be. 2012 was the deadliest year for green on blue attacks. That I think it was like 62 or 63 attacks that year. The previous three to five years combined, it was like 30. So 2012 was the deadliest for green on blue attacks. Um, we were put in, and by we, I mean the sergeants and below. So our three sergeants, the corporal, my buddy Dylan, and then the two lance corporals, myself. So that's one, two, six Marines that are an E5 and below. We were in charge of this thing called the Leave Flight Program. And what that meant was we were in charge of, roughly three or four Marines were in charge of checking IDs, checking luggage, conducting body searches on the Afghans, and ensuring that no weapons or anything were found, and putting them on a plane to go on vacation. And then the plane that comes back, doing the same process all over again. At any time, it was three to four Marines with 150 to 400 Afghans at one time. You had one Marine in charge of checking IDs and checking a list to make sure they were supposed to be going on vacation. Then you had one Marine in charge of conducting the bag searches and the body searches, and he would have a couple Afghan guys helping him out with that. Then you had another Marine in charge of ensuring that the Afghan soldiers were getting onto the vehicles to convoy to the airfield to get on the plane. Then you had a fourth Marine who was the guardian angel, which was me. My sole purpose was to analyze everybody that was within our area. Um, What I forgot to mention was we did all this in what we called the cage. It was essentially a chain link fence that was like 30 yards wide by 15 yards deep. And we would just cram all these Afghan soldiers in there because that's what we had to do with ourselves. So we were all in a very close proximity to each other and on top of that you had afghans outside of the cage because we were living on their base by the way so you had afghans just freely roaming around you have buildings to the left to the right in front of us behind us and afghans are walking around they have their weapons you know they have their vehicles with their mounted weapon systems on them so we were in charge of doing that leaf fly program. <laughs> and another thing to mention too, that when I say this to people that were in the Marine Corps, and of course even that aren't in, they would just laugh. When we first got to Afghanistan, we were told by our command, we will not wear body armor when we're on their base, on the Afghan base, because it shows that we don't trust them. So at an early point when we got there, this is what we were told. So we're like, uh, that doesn't make sense, but okay. <laughs> then we were also told, your primary weapon, which is usually our M4s, we can't carry those over there because it shows that we don't trust them. Instead, you'll carry your sidearm, so just a pistol. So as a young Marine, I'm thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Like, we're in Afghanistan. This is a, like, this is a war. You, we're living on an Afghan base. You want us to walk around their base without body armor? And with just a pistol while these guys are walking around with AK-47s, fully automatic M4s, M16s, right? Like all these uh, pretty pretty much just weaponry that overpowers a sidearm. So 
With that in mind, we are in the cage, and every Marine has just a pistol, except for me. I get to carry whatever weapon of choice I wanted, and that was either a shotgun or our M4. But still, we couldn't wear body armor. So I would, depending on the amount of personnel we were searching that day or putting on a leaf flight, would dictate what kind of loadout, so what I would be carrying that day, how many magazines of ammo, um, would I bring the shotgun that day, would I not, just random stuff like that, because my job was to ensure that everything that was happening outside and inside of this cage, I, I was to make sure that no threat would come to our doorstep. So I was constantly analyzing everybody's movement, everybody's hands, everybody's facial expressions to see maybe someone who's sweating and who looks pretty pissed off for some reason. Because if that's the case, what's his deal? Why is he sweating? Does he plan on doing something? Um, Checking buildings. Or not checking them, but like observing the windows, observing doors, observing these vehicles that are driving by. I was always analyzing, which didn't help me at all in <clears throat> at all in any ways because prior to joining the marine corps i was already aware of my surroundings i was just taught that from an early age just you know walk with your head up and just kind of look around see what's going on boot camp they preach that a lot and then in your training when you get out work up you're always told to keep your head on a swivel always assessing what's going on then multiply that by being the only marine in charge of protecting your other marines surrounded by hundreds of afghans in 2012 where green and blue attacks were happening it felt like daily so that i mean we did that for a whole year so that was always mentally tiring um to this day i still assess everything that's happening i'm always looking i'm always watching people's hands even though i know i'm not in a combat area I think that was just so ingrained in me even more that that for the longest time from getting back, that pretty much took me over. Um, I'd be out with my family and I wouldn't necessarily be present to go back to the, to go back to the, to the deployment. Um, yeah, I saw some pretty messed up things. Uh, my buddy Dylan and I, we were in charge of the hero flights. What is that? Well, we we were in charge of inspecting dead Afghan bodies to ensure that there were no bombs put in them before we took the Afghan deceased soldier to the American British base to then have them prepped, put into you know a casket essentially, and then put on a flight and flown to Kabul. So where we were at in Afghanistan, we were in Helmand province. It was the southwest corner of Afghanistan. Kabul was more up in the northern, northeastern part. Excuse me. So we were in charge of inspecting dead Afghan bodies to make sure that no explosives were in them. And we did this with the help of Afghans because obviously Westerners can't touch an Afghan body. So we would do this with the help of Afghans. <clears throat> so my buddy Hardik and I, we got to smell death. We got to see death on the regular. So we would then in, get the bodies inspected, bring them over to the British base, put them through an x-ray to make sure nothing else was seen in the body. And then we would, uh, that body would then get prepped for a flight. And then either myself or my buddy Dylan would be tasked with accompanying that body on the flight to Kabul. Throughout our duration there, we both examined and saw 72. We kind of kept it as a running joke of just counting how many dead bodies we saw. Uh, 72 dead bodies. Um, And their, their wounds ranged all over from simple gunshot to being blown up so we would see bodies that obviously maybe had no limbs maybe missing a limb um, someone shot i think the youngest 
person we saw was like a was like a 16 year old Afghan sol soldier. Um, but then the hardest ones, of course, I think, because we're not Americans, we're seeing the we're seeing and escorting the American hero flights. Only did four of those, uh, but those were probably the hardest because I think you feel some sense of guilt. Right, like, dang, here's a brother. Don't even know this guy. Don't even know him whatsoever. Here's a brother, and uh, he's going home sooner than expected. And not how he planned on going home, probably. And not how his family planned that either. So to sit there in a plane in the back with a casket with an American flag draped over it is... I, I don't really know how to explain that. Um, it's a very somber feeling. Um, Do again, you project that could be me and what if this was yeah. my family yeah. having to go through it? Yeah, I mean, you just think of all kinds of things. I mean, you wonder, like, damn, could that be me next? Because tomorrow I'm supposed to go assist with a patrol. Without protection. Right. So, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to go assist with this, or I'm going to go on a convoy in two days. Like, is that going to be me? Am I going to get blown up and ejected from a from my turret? Or am I going to get into a firefight because I'm the gunner on our vehicle? Um, you know, like, is that going to be me? Like, damn, who's going to tell Megan? I mean, my buddy Dylan and I, we already had letters written. And we gave to each other whenever certain things, like we had to go do a certain mission or a certain task, we would be like, hey man, just in case. Because we were tasked with doing some like really off the wall shit. I mean, I remember one of the, <laughs> I remember an Afghan outpost got attacked by the Taliban. And then we were tasked with going to help assist with whatever. I have no idea. So then we go there. And I apologize for how gruesome this sounds. I mean, it's just the way of war out there, but all the Afghan soldiers at this outpost, their heads were cut off and put in their lap. All right. And that was like when we first got there. I think, I think it happened. I think that happened within the first two months that I can recall. So we're just seeing death left and right. We weren't a part of it, but we're just seeing it. And then again, the green on blue. Right, so just the fear of the unknown was just, I mean, it just overwhelmed us. At one point, my buddy and I, we were so fed up that we were like, dude, the anticipation is killing me. Just shoot me in the back already. Because it, like, it got that bad at some points. How many deployments did you have? <laughs> I just had the one deployment, and that was for a year. Um, I just had the one. I don't, again, I don't regret that deployment. Um, I don't regret what I did. My my unit, some of them, like the higher-ups, heavily leaned on me in regards to, because I ended up being like personal security for our colonel. So I traveled with him a lot. Um, I don't know if maybe... Like, I get a thrill out of protecting others. And a lot of others do as well in the Marine Corps. But I don't know if maybe just my personality or what, but my unit gravitated towards that and always wanted me to be some form of security for them, which at the time I didn't care. I I loved it. I got to travel. Afghan. I mean, I went all over Afghanistan. Usually when people deploy, they stay within their one little area. Nah, I got to go all over the place. I went from the desert. I went to the northern part of Afghanistan where you see mountains and trees and it's green everywhere. And then I went to the east side of Afghanistan where it's just lush with grass and I mean it's I, I, Afghanistan was a trip because just different parts of the country are just so beautiful but I got to travel a lot so I don't I mean I enjoyed it um, but I did that for a year and then after that got back from deployment um, was excited obviously we made it out alive and uh, as soon as I got back well, before I, before I got back from deployment, I tried to get a request to get stationed in California. The request was granted. So, got back from Afghanistan, 
packed up and moved from Lejeune within about a month. Got stationed in North Carolina, or got stationed in California. Shortly after that, Megan's pregnant. So as soon as I got back from deployment, I had no time to decompress at all from what I had seen, some of the things I had been through. I had no time to decompress. So I think every, not every, but the majority of uh, people who come back, I think they pick up the habit of drinking. So started drinking, not heavily, but drank. Getting ready to bring a new life into this world. I mean, I don't know how to do that at all. I felt like I could barely take care of my own self, but now I'm about to bring, <laughs> bring, a, bring a child into this world. So that pressure was building up on me. Um, I be- Megan and I became distant because I didn't really open up about what I had done, what I had seen in Afghanistan. So then November of 2013, our son, Kaysen, came into this world and then fatherhood hit. Right? So now I'm learning to be a father. As you know, parenting for the first time has its ups and downs, no doubt. Um, more good than bad, of course. And it's challenging. Oh, my goodness. Even now, I mean, he just turned six, but I feel like he just turned 13 the, the way he is. But, yeah, I mean, at the time, it's, yeah, it's challenging. Like, how I have this baby. He won't stop crying. I don't know what to do. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands here, people. I'm just going to keep bobbing. We found out that just bobbing pretty intensely would make him go out like would just make him go to sleep so we would just meg and i whoever was holding him would just sit there and bob like crazy and just say shh really loud and he would eventually pass out he was a tough baby so then that so then he came into the world i was nearing a decision on getting out of the marine corps or not um we decided to get out <laughs> that that was a that was a funny experience in itself. Um, basically, what happened is the Marine Corps was doing a voluntary early release program, or the VERP. If you had a certain amount of time on contract left, you could volunteer to get released early. So I put in a package. I was told it was accepted. About a month later, I was told it was denied. So, mind you, when I was told it was accepted, Megan and I had already started running full speed on what the next steps would be. As I was going to check out from the Marine Corps, I was told, hey, uh, something's wrong here. You need to look into it. So then I did. Come to find out, my package was originally denied. But I have an email stating that it was approved. So I was told I was denied things changed. I had like two weeks to re-enlist into the Marine Corps because the deadline was coming up. (laughs) Put in a re-enlistment package. What do we do? I don't know. We'll try to get a by-name request for recruiting duty and we'll stay in California. Quote, unquote, hopefully. Contact the Sergeant Major at a certain recruiting station out here in California tell him I'm trying to get a by name request meaning he requests hey I want Sergeant Moltz to come work for me in a nutshell he tells me yep I'll go and put you down this and that there's no guarantees but I'll put you down I said sweet thank you I appreciate that get to recruiter school it's in San Diego do recruiter school and then like a week before you graduate recruiting school you're given your duty assignment where you're going to go when you first get to recruiting school you write down where you would like to go so like a top three and it's all by districts so california like whole west coast and hawaii guam is the 12th district so that was my first pick and then you pick three stations like sacramento or san fran sacramento orange county whatever and then another district so i think i picked the west coast I picked the Texas area, I think it was the 8th. I could be wrong, I don't remember. And then I picked, I think, like, Florida area. 
Now you know where we just came from. Indiana. Indiana. Indiana was not on our radar. So when I'm told, Sergeant Maltz, you're going to 9th District in RS Indianapolis. I no joke said, Gunny, you must have read that wrong. I'm not going to 9th District. He said, shut the fuck up. You are. That just started a, a whirlwind. So we get to Indiana for recruiting duty. Never been there before. We buy our first home in Indiana. So we were first time homeowners, which felt great. Uh, we had a beautiful home, big old backyard. I mean, it's, we paid 150 for a four bed, two and a half bath backyard, had a two story shed, hot tub, big trees, grass. I mean, it, it, was, it was just a beautiful home. We bought it for the backyard. And we loved it. I mean, for 150, right? You can't buy nothing like that out here. You got to give up your firstborn and some to even get a property like that. So the first couple months in Indiana were good. Now, mind you, I still haven't decompressed, and this has been two and a half years now. I've been back from deployment. I went to a mental health physician um, when I was at Pendleton. This was in like May of 2014. And I only know the date because I just went through all my VA claim stuff. And I had to recall that. And I found a piece of paper. I went to a mental health individual and kind of explained to her some of the things that I'm dealing with. Right? What I see, what I can't come to grips with, whatnot. She literally told me. You know, because I'm thinking, and I've kind of been told by others, like, hey, you might have a little form of PTSD, right? Like, you might want to get that checked out. Marines are very prideful. Very prideful. So I'm like, I don't have, I don't, I don't have PTSD. There's, there's no way I got PTSD. I didn't really get blown up. I didn't go through some horrific shit. You weren't in battle. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's yeah. no way. Right? Because... <laughs> The best, the best way to explain the Marine Corps, okay, and I apologize to the viewers who may be listening to this, this statement sums up the Marine Corps and is as ignorant as this sounds, this is how the Marine Corps operates. Everything is a dick measuring contest. Plain and simple. Uh-huh. Right? I think you might have PTSD. There's no way I have PTSD. I know dudes who've been blown up. I know a dude who lost a leg. That dude's got PTSD. I don't have PTSD. I'm tougher. I, yeah, yeah, I'm tougher. I, I didn't experience anything like that dude did. So, no, I don't have anything. And I'm not, dis- like, I'm not downplaying that at all, right? Course, like, anyone yeah. who's gone through that and experienced it, I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying I don't qualify to be in the same category as this individual. Because in my mind, that dude's done some shit. That's a hero. I didn't do nothing. So there's no way I'm in that category. What we call the wizard, the mental health, we, we just call them the wizard. The wizard straight up told me, you know what? I don't think you have any issues. Even though I explained kind of what we've talked about, the amount of death I saw. I wasn't a part of, but I saw, experienced. No, I don't. I don't think you have any issues. There are people who have way more issues than you. I think. I think you're just fine. You'll be okay. Uh, oh, okay. I guess I'll be okay. So two and a half years later, Indiana, having decompressed, had a child. Meg and I got distant. Recruiting duty is a very. <clears throat> It's a fucked up duty. I'm just, I'm going to put it that way. I was working 80 plus hours a week on recruiting duty. Our home was a mile away from my recruiting office, like exactly 1.0 miles from the recruiting office. And that was so if I had late nights, I didn't have to drive far to get home. right? Or if the wife and someone would come see me quickly at lunch, they can come see me. Two weeks went where I did not see them. I would get home, they'd be asleep. I'd wake up and leave before they were even up for the day. For two weeks. I was putting in 80 plus hours a week. 
recruiting duty in itself is a trip. What I mean by that is if you're not on recruiting duty in the Marine Corps, you're kind of told that you're a POS, right? Like you're a POS, you don't amount to nothing, get the mission done. Check, good to go, got it, right? On recruiting duty to these high school kids, you're like, you're like Superman. Like, dang, here's a Marine in dress blues. I want to be in the Marine Corps. How do I do that? Right? They look up to you. Some kids may not even have a father figure, and they look up to you as a father figure. Or some had an older brother, but the older brother died. But now he looks up to you as an older brother. Right? So now you have all these, dy- like all these dynamics that play into recruiting duty. So you feed into that. These kids who think you're great at everything, you start believing in that. So now your head is just imploded here. Now you're just this amazing Marine and you could do no wrong. And for me, that got to me. Um, recruiting duty is when I probably hit the darkest moment in my life. Again, I was growing up, I was told to shut up, keep things suppressed, join the Marine Corps, shut up, keep things suppressed, don't really show weakness or softness, whatever. And you're okay. And I'm okay. The wizard said so. Yeah, exactly. The wizard said so. I have a wife. I have a beautiful son, right? Um, But I push them away. Recruiting duty, I lost myself. I became, I became like a high school kid again, but I was at, I was 28, right? But I became like a high school kid because that's all I surrounded myself with. I bought into the, oh, Sergeant Maltz is cool thing. And I got sucked into that. I pushed my family away. Um, I, I battled demons big time. I pushed my family away so much that Megan and Kaysen moved back here to California for six months or so. Um, I was drinking a lot. I I became heavy, heavy, heavily into alcohol. I'd get off work two o'clock in the morning, go home, have two or three drinks of gin, just straight. That was my drink of choice of gin, maybe have two or three bottles of beer, go to sleep, wake up, go back to work. And I'm running on like four or five hours of sleep. Repeat the process. Go home. I mean, I was at the liquor store, I think every other day, buying a 30-pack of beer and a bottle of gin almost every other day. After I came out of my dark season, Meg and I looked back on it, and I was spending somewhere like close to like $600 a month on alcohol. And that was to suppress my feelings, my emotions, the shit that I did to my family. It was to just suppress that. As I've gotten, not older, but as I've matured, I've learned that that is not how you deal with that. I went through a bad season for about a year. Uh, Almost killed myself. That's when I woke up. That was quite the cliffhanger, right? Make sure to download and listen to part two of this interview, which is streaming right now. In part two, you will hear how David endures even more trauma, but through his hardships, he is able to find his way back home. We hope you enjoyed this episode, which was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We want to thank all our guests whose open and honest responses shaped another great season. As always, we need to thank our listeners whose support means so much to us. Additionally, we must thank our great contributors for their music, Hunter Lewis, Robert Stanley, Danny Burns, and Alejandro of Drobeats. We also need to thank Justice Stanley for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for web design, St. Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsor, Solid Lotion Bars. 
and the JEI Learning Center. If you wish to find us, you can do so on our website, podsavetherestofus.com, as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus, and on the Twitter at savetherestofus. We'd like to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.